0: Live export is a difficult subject. Some listeners may find this challenging. I'm Colin Klupik, this is 47 Degrees. I'd only ever spoken to Lynn about her experiences over the phone. Media coverage also helped to fill some gaps in understanding the person behind the story. But after some discussion, the suggestion was made to pay her a visit, to get a sense of the environment she lives in, and to see firsthand how her collected experiences have shaped the person she is today. So I bought a plane bound for rural Southeast Australia. I've traveled a fair bit throughout Australia, most of the major capitals and many of the natural wonders. But when you get to the airport and see that your plane has propellers, you know that you're not on a major commuter run like Sydney to Melbourne. Look, it's not such a big deal, but it's not often you get on a plane and then someone comes around reshuffling the passengers to get the weight and balance right. I'll bet they're not doing that on the jet next to us. Lynn agrees to collect me from the airport, As the plane lands, I wonder whether I'll have the stereotypes smashed and get collected in a bog-standard Korean sedan. Nope. No problems there. She's driving a Holden ute that looks like it belongs in the country. No apologies for the crap in the back, so I cram into the front with my bags. Not hard to spot the city slicker. Mandy was right. She is a terrible cook, but I only found that out by Lynn's own admission, because I never got to sample any of her cooking. We headed straight for a cafe by the river to help me acclimatise to the chilly weather. Whilst I savoured my coffee and went to great lengths to compliment the young chap who served us, I found out shortly afterwards that it's a much more utilitarian thing for Lynn. She's just in it for the caffeine. Soon after, I found myself accompanying Lynn to feed the horses. There were chores to be done. Once a symbol of not being so well off around the time cars were introduced, horses are now for those with the spare time and facilities to enjoy them, she tells me. Jeepers, a transport inversion. I ask a stupid question about the licorice she's feeding them. Why do people feed horses licorice? Anything special about it? Hang on, that's licorice, right? Do you like licorice? <laughs> no, no, I don't. A straight shoot and answer. Because they like it. Clearly my questions need to improve. I pull out my phone to record the horses standing in the chilly breeze. Not sure what I was thinking, after all, Mr. Ed was a TV show character, remember? We eventually settled down to some discussion. I'm keen to find out more about how this started. Lynn, the journey that you went on with Live Animal Export started a long time ago. And the way I read the story is that it's, it's possible that you weren't even really thinking about that until you saw some of the evidence of, of those sorts of things on the docks when you were... When you were working as a wharfie, can you take me back to that time and tell me what went through your mind when you first encountered what we know as live animal export?
1: Um, To start with, I'd say my journey with live exports is actually still continuing because I'm still working with it every day. Okay. Um...
0: Despite not being on a ship?
1: Yeah, despite not being on on a ship. There's there's plenty of um, groundwork to be done regarding and around this trade, being employed in it or around it or against it or whatever. Um, On the wharf, it was quite interesting because – the, the wharf's just a really busy place and you're working for dollars per, per minute. For example, having one of those ships tied up in port in Fremantle at the moment costs about 800 and maybe $803 an hour.
0: An hour. An hour. Eight hundred and three.
1: I think it's eight hundred and three dollars okay. an hour. They didn't want to
0: go for a round number. No,
1: no, no, no round numbers there. Um, and interestingly, a large cargo ship, um, container ship, um, is something like two hundred and seventy dollars an hour. So there's there's instantly this um, massive incentive for the the export ships, particularly, to be really you know quick hooning, yeah. and um, and so because of that uh, that cost to the exporters and the amount of people that are involved to, to load a live export ship versus, you know, one person in a crane putting containers onto a ship, um, you know, the the cost is exponential. And that meant that when we we're working on the wharf, everything was just done at high speed and as quickly as possible in out. And it kind of didn't really give you the chance to fully appreciate the individuality of your task and also... What the animals were as individuals, they mm. they soon became just a mob that you had to move, mm. and um, and and in that, I think their individual suffering and stress is lost on a lot of people who are involved in that trade. Yeah.
0: And at this point, you're still you're still working as a wharfie. You're not actually working as a vet on a live export ship.
1: No, I was working as a wharfie, and I was also doing full time vet. Um, studies as well so you know we're talking um, massive fatigue lots of things on my mind and I'm just juggling a whole lot of different aspects of my life so um, so my priorities were all over the place and um, and as a vet student you don't have the powers that you have once you're a vet to sort of you know everyone has the power to stand up and say I don't think this is right yeah sure but you're not necessarily going to get listened to Mm. and or employed again so, um, so, as a student, you sort of sit back and you you're still in learning mode, and so, on the wharf, I think I was just in a lot of learning mode and um and I saw what was happening, and reflecting on that now, I see that there was um there's there's scope, especially for the other vets who were graduated and working as vets at the time on the wharf, to have actually stepped in and done a lot more to improve the way we were moving animals, the way we were treating them, the speed at which we were expecting them to move, the temperatures in which we were moving them. Yeah, it gets pretty hot over there. Really cold in Portland and really hot in Fremantle. So, you know, and it's hot. You know, the irony, and we've discussed this already with animal care, the irony with animal care is um, it's the extreme weather events, being cold or hot, that the animals actually need more care. Mm. And so when the animals are experiencing that, the workers are experiencing that.
0: So when you were there as a student and observing the, the professional vets at the time, also not really noticing too much what was going on, is that just, a again, just a factor of the, the pace and the speed of, of moving animals on and off the ship?
1: Yes, it is. And you don't get to see an individual animal for much time and they're on the go. So when the animal's actually running past you and not sort of standing in a paddock looking at you and exhibiting natural behaviours, um, like, you know, looking and standing, limping, maybe holding a leg up, mm. coughing, that kind of thing, you it's a lot more difficult to assess their their actual health status and their um well being. Um and I guess some of the vets were probably a good role model. And others who were more entrenched in the trade possibly were poor role models for me as a vet Mm -hmm. um, because they weren't alarmed by anything that they saw. Um, So that didn't sort of, you know spark a light with me that I should be alarmed. I was like, oh, well, maybe I'm oversensitive or or whatever. But anyway, you got on with your job and you just did it. So but-
0: presumably you would have seen this happen again and again because ships would come and go reasonably frequently. Something I'm curious about is um, it's my understanding that it can take quite a while to load a ship, several days. And mm-hmm. so the animals, they, they go up, up the gangway and, and then they go to where they go and then they have to stand around for a few days before you even set sail. How many, how many ships coming and going did you have to see before that reality clicked in for you?
1: Oh, that was um, almost immediate. You knew that the first animal on was still down, you know, because of the ballast of the ship and the balance of the ship. Um, the first animal on is usually going to the bottom of the ship and, um, and so you may be loading that ship for three days and the animal that you saw three days previously has been standing in a pen and you've not seen it again since. But meanwhile, we're just loading more and more in around him. Mm. So, um, so yeah, that animal's been there for that whole time. And that became um, – that was always something that I was just aware of, a bit like somebody walks into their office and they know there's a door and there's yeah. a chair and a desk and, you know, you just take it for granted because it is, you know, mm. that's the fact. Um, when it became most important for me to be bringing that up was when I was working for the Department of Agriculture and – There's a a mixture of maritime terms and agricultural terms and everyone uses their own lingo and jargon and and whatnot. And one of the issues was we were talking about um, voyage length and the government standards talk about 10-day voyages or voyages over 10 days. And um, one one is short haul, one is long haul. Mm -hmm. And and I started pointing out to them that that's a sailing term. So that's from when we actually leave port to arriving in another port. But that doesn't
0: doesn't account for the time that they're sitting in port.
1: Correct. So that's not loaded time. And I said we need to have a different definition in our standards that include loaded time because, you know, some of these animals, especially if you do multi-port discharges, um, which take, you know, a lot more time when you're not actually steaming or sailing, um, you could have animals that were the first one loaded so they sit in port for an extra three days before you start your sailing days or your voyage days, and then they'll sit in port when you're discharging in a couple of ports. So there's maybe another three days, and then you get to your final port and you discharge there, and they'll be the last one off. So they they could have done eight days more um, loaded time on or in an unnatural environment such mm. as a ship compared to other animals that were loaded last.
0: So, uh, again, not knowing too much about how animals behave in the field, um, when, a, when an animal goes on and has to stand in the pen there for three days, does it literally stand for three days? Can, can they lie down at all?
1: There's been studies done to see how long it takes them to actually rest and or to lie down and rest. Um, the stocking densities that we've been working with up until very recently have shown that... Um, In general, most animals can't lie down at the same time and they have to take turns. It's almost Mm -hmm. like a bit of a timeshare. And, you know, often you'll have one lying down and another animal straddling over the top of them, standing upright. So, um, especially with cattle. And um, that makes it tremendously difficult to monitor and have a look at these animals to see who's sick and who's unwell and lame and ill.
0: And, And I suppose you being on the wharf doing your job, just coming back to your time actually on the wharf, because you're moving around so quickly. Oh, and, that's got
1: nothing to do with me then at yeah, that
0: point. So you're not watching that at all. Nope. So no no one's really watching that, are they? Uh,
1: the onboard vet should be and the onboard stockman should be, but in port you're usually so busy the vet might be doing some intermittent rounds mm-hmm. um, or even if they're doing continual rounds, they're doing the entire ship instead of having backup doing it as well with them and helping – give feedback regarding mm-hmm. information um, for animals that are ill or injured or suspect. Um, but in general, the vet and the um, the stockman and the crew are busy literally just moving the animals yeah. to their pens. Yeah. So the husbandry basically goes out the window, and by husbandry I mean the sanitary conditions of cleaning the water troughs and yeah. um, the feed troughs and stuff like that. So.
0: So presumably then uh, you would have seen the odd mishap on on, uh, on the docks. Uh, I don't – I mean, we talk about herding cats. I can't imagine herding sheep up a gangway into a ship is uh, the most straightforward experience. Did you see anything there which started to alert you to the fact that maybe this isn't the best way to go about this?
1: Uh, I didn't just see it. I experienced it myself. You know, you get to a point where you're moving so – like – I've always said to people, anybody who has really worked with livestock, especially sheep, for any length of time and large numbers of them, will have lost the plot with them at some point and, you know, broken out with some kind of angry...
0: You get cranky at sheep. Oh, you get cranky <laughs> at
1: sheep. And it's not because they're stupid. Sheep, sheep you know, we all say sheep are stupid. Um, and then people who know more about sheep tend to say that the people who own them are more stupid. But
0: um, I, th- I think your dogs are... Uh, re- <laughs> uh, <laughs> the,
1: the sheep dog out there, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah she's a, like, th- back, back off. I
0: think they have an opinion. <laughs>
1: Um, yeah, so, you know, sheep farmers and I always laugh, you know, the only thing more stupid than a sheep is a person that owns them. And, um, and of course, that's not, that's not a slur on sheep farmers. That's, um, that's that's a joke, right? That's just a joke. And, you know, <laughs> the people that work with them, and we're always laughing because, you know, usually at the end of a day of, you know, it doesn't matter if you're mustering or you're shearing or you're, you're doing something with a large group, you know, at some stage they'll just frustrate you so much mm. because you're moving so many, um, they lose their individuality because, A, they look the same yeah. generally. Yeah. So, you know, it's just... You know, that's why counting sheep puts you to sleep. Um, right. Yep. So, Good point. <laughs> yeah. So, so, you know, you soon lose um, your concentration <clears throat> focus. You know what you're doing, but you're not really paying that mm. much attention. Um, but if they keep turning around and um, trying to come back at you and you have to keep sort of Turning a sixty-five kilogram beast and trying to push it up a, a pen where it's go, up a raceway and it's like going, I'm not going to go there, and its friends are going, I'm not going there because Bob's not going there, so there's something wrong, there's a monster, and you're like, there's not a monster, you're an idiot, and um, and you're driving me nuts, and I've been doing this for six hours, and I think my arms are going to fall off, and you know, I'm I'm tired and fatigued, and
0: and I don't suppose the sheep is wearing rubber soled shoes to help them get grip up the gangway, right?
1: No, not necessarily. Usually, usually the ramps um, are cleated, and um, and we often put sawdust down. On, on the on the ramps, so that they're um, more user friendly for them. But they're, but they're, again, they're an unnatural environment, and they are harsh on the animals. And the animals slip, and they smash their knees on checkerplated, um, you know, little cleating rods across yeah. ramps and stuff like that. And um, and that's got to be painful. But because of the stress and the pace of the way we work them, you know, they get up and run. You know,
0: so it's a harsh environment. Um, presumably, also for for a woman on the on the docks. What's that like?
1: Um, oh, look, I've got to say, you know, people often think that being a female in this industry um, would have been really challenging. It it was more a, um, an amusement, I guess, than anything. When I started, I think there were four of us. And I still remember a day that was, um, it was kind of funny in its weirdness, because we got our first female toilet block. Um, nice. On the, on the wharf in 1999, and I still remember um, there was three three of the women, including myself, working that day on the shift, and um, and it was just a of brick toilet block like you'd find in any park. Like there was nothing flash about it, but it wasn't. Um, you didn't have to take a point man no. when you went to the toilet like you did <laughs> when you've got all the truckies and the wharfies and you know everyone else <laughs> you know on the on the wharf and you're trying to walk in past the men's urinals, going nothing to see here, nothing to see here. <laughs> um, 'Cause you need to go to the loo. And um and so we were just sort of we we kind of made a mockery of it and um and we at some stage during a smoke break someone went out and bought a couple of um cans of Jack Daniels and Coke and we backed my Ute up to the toilet block after the shift and we just played some some uh, inauguration um toilet appropriate music <laughs> and um and, and sat on the, the tailgate of the Ute and had a couple of cans of um of of alcohol just to sort of have a bit of a laugh about the fact that we are finally joining the um the 20th century so it wasn't
0: anything special but it was your toilet block
1: it was our toilet block and it was (laughs) awesome and it it, well it was kind of special because until then women obviously were not recognized enough on the wharf to have their own facilities
0: i think that's extraordinary that it took until 1999 (laughs) tell me is it is it physical work, and the reason why I ask that question is because when I go to uh, or look from the distance in Sydney, for example, at Port Botany there you see big machines picking up containers and you think, oh, that's all right, someone's pressing the button and the the container gets picked up. Um, And uh, in the port of Newcastle, uh, in the city where I live, um, where the coal ships come in, no one's lifting anything because the the coal just comes in on conveyor belts and there's a few guys there pressing buttons, making sure that it gets poured into the right spot. Mm. But the kind of work that you were doing with the animals, is it really tough physical work?
1: Yeah, times have changed. Wharfies used to be called lumpers. And that was because they would pick up a big sack of something and lump it on their back and, you know, carry it up a ramp. Sheep included? Not sheep generally. um, Deer. We would carry deer. Um, But they would carry stuff and um and so they were just called lumpers and um and then it got very automated and we had cranes and containers and and that kind of thing but with the live export ships we didn't have that luxury because of course we've got walking stock so we, mm. we don't have to carry that so that's um that's a bonus but we carry a lot of uh, chaff and um sawdust and different provisions that are required that don't walk and aren't conveniently the ships aren't designed necessarily to conveniently um get them into the ships All right
0: this isn't there's not a Door on the side that, you know, this hatch that opens up and says, put feed here.
1: Well, there is, but you can sort of get a crane platform to it, but then somebody's got to step out from the ship door mm. onto the plane, onto the crane platform, and then grab the bag and then step back over the big, the, the, whatever chasm it is between you and falling down in between the ship and the wharf, and back into the ship, and then you carry it in. And I remember one day there was a, a gang of us inside a ship, and um, they kept bringing sawdust up to this one door. And throughout the day, throughout our shift, we moved 29 tonne of sawdust um, each. So, sort of in a fireman's um, line. So, every single one of us had held 29 tonne. (laughs) And we were all completely stuffed. And it was a ship where... I'm five nine, and I couldn't stand up in this deck.
0: Oh wow! So that's where the animals are, aren't they? Yeah, this in... is for a sheep. And um, wait a second, I'll just—I'll just pause you there. We'll come back to this later. But you're five foot nine, and you can't stand up in there. But that's where the sheep are. Yep. So there's not a lot of headroom. No. Wow. Well, we'll come back to that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. That's definitely an issue. Um, and so the pain by the time you finish the next day, everyone was seized up and you know using mm. every swear word known to man regarding the company because you know.
0: I don't suppose they were offering, you know, WHS massages the next day for no. sore shoulders and things like that?
1: No, but the next time the ship came in, it was funny because they um, they tried to put a gang of us on, on sawdust and were told in no uncertain terms what they could do with their sawdust. <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> And then, and and Warfie's never knocked up, knock back, knocked back a shift. But this was like, you know, everyone was still going, I'm only just walking upright again now, yeah, you yeah. know, don't be so silly. And so the boss thought they'd be um, pretty clever and they started uh, contacting football teams saying, Oh, we've got this great tra- <laughs> training regime. And um, and we'd sit back doing our normal job of, you know, climbing trucks and getting sheep and cattle off the trucks onto the ramps. And um, these foot we'd watch, <laughs> we'd watch these football teams fatigue and flag throughout the.
0: Now you you were doing this when you were studying at university, so this was kind of your uh, your part time uni gig. My now, forty
1: hour a week uni part time uni gig. Yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> so, so I mean, uh, being the uh, the city dweller that I that I am, I, I when I think about university students doing side gigs to earn themselves a bit of cash, I'm thinking, you know, if you if you wind back the clock to when you were doing it, maybe a job at Video Easy or down at the local supermarket, or maybe some professional experience you're down on the wharf, um, you know, lifting heavy objects and and chasing cattle up up the planks and so forth and loading other ships, no doubt. How did that impact your life as a university student?
1: Um, It just meant I had very little time to do anything sort of outside of study and work and when there was recreational time, it was sort of go hard or go home. And um, so. Now, you were
0: living some distance away from the wharf as well.
1: Uh... Oh, no, not too far. I was only, for the first four years, I was only, I was, first two years on the wharf, I was only about 8Ks. And oh, okay. the last year, I was about thirty k's away.
0: Is that when you were staying with Mandy?
1: Yeah, yeah, out in um, the Swan Valley.
0: Okay, so was it uh, was it nice just to have maybe a little bit of a break between the wharf and getting home? So suddenly the the commute might just be considered a, a bit of a rest time.
1: Yeah, I, I guess you. Um, I guess by the time you get out of the car, you're sort of half fatigued and um, and almost unconscious. I remember. Um, one day one of the jobs we also used to do was unload uh, car carriers and um and most people don't realize that the smell of that new car smell that everyone just goes oh I just love it is actually formaldehyde and um really yeah <laughs> and um really? and so it'll start to knock you out pretty quickly Yeah. and <laughs> what they what they do with those ships is they they hire a gang of of Warfies, and um, you've got strict dress regulations. So they they really want you to dress like, uh, you know, a character out of house. They want you to be in in soft tracksuit pants, yeah. no no buckles, no. Yeah, because met- you've,
0: you've got to drive them off, right?
1: Yeah, no, and you've got to shimmy in between them. Yes, these brand new cars, and if you back then, if you did more than two and a half thousand dollars worth of damage, which is really a scratch, um, the thing was written off. So, or you have to buy it. <laughs> There's only so many high as a person needs. Um, <laughs> And um, and so they would have gangs of us, you know, dressed in soft clothing and um, and soft shoes, soft clean shoes, and they'd pick us up in a rental car, and they would drive the rental car into a ship, and you just got in the next vehicles that were lined up to um, to go out, and that could have been a truck, a tractor, a Lamborghini, a wow. Hyundai.
0: I, I can imagine there'd just be thousands of guys who would just say, "Wait a second, you're going to pay me to wear tracky dacks during the day and drive <laughs> other people's cars." I'm in. And you're not allowed to wear a belt like I'm
1: you know. I'm in. I'm just so in. <laughs> so so yeah so so they were the more relaxing days but but interestingly you know you get pretty bored of you know you drive your car out and then you get picked up by the rental car and you get you know driven back in with your your little crew of four and you get in the next four cars and you go out and you know one person will be showing off going oh I got the WRX and you're like oh yeah I got the John Deere fantastic. Nice. And um <laughs> and so so it was a bit amusing but um but I remember Wishing that I was living closer to town at that time because I got halfway home and the fumes of these new cars all day had um, had really hit me hard, and I had to pull over on the side of the highway and actually just sleep for half an hour.
0: Yeah, and then when you come home, uh, you say hello to Mandy and her and her do- dogs. her two, yeah, her two, t- two dogs.
1: You met her kids.
0: Oh. That I treated like ah. kelpies. <laughs> oh. Yeah, sorry. I, I got that got that mixed up. But then, you know, after you've recovered from the formaldehyde and then uh, made it all the way home, then you've got to presumably have some dinner and say, oh, look, I unloaded a couple of Lamborghinis, a tractor, and, and herded a few thousand sheep. And uh, by the way, if you need me after dinner, I'll be deep into a biochemistry textbook.
1: Yeah, something like that, yeah. How
0: did you do that?
1: Yeah, after you've checked any lame horses that she may have found that day. Oh, or of course. Yeah, yeah, yep. Yeah. 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 Any so-
0: of those, those veterinary favours.
1: Oh, look, it's, I guess it's just the, the beauty of being younger. And, you know, I look at it now and I'm like, oh, there's no way I could keep up with that pace. You know, I'd just have an IV infusion of, of Red Bull or something to, to keep me going, you know, with a big camel pack on the back. But, um, but no, you, you know, when you're in your, your 20s, um, you just do what you do and you don't think twice about it and you don't think it's ever going to run out. So, um, so yeah, no, I was very fit. And, and people always thought that I, I was some kind of, you know, gym junkie. And I'm like, no, I just work for a living.
0: Yeah, I just yeah, and well, Lamborghinis, tractors, sheep—it's all just part of a day's work. So when you when you then started to see uh, when after you'd seen a lot of ships coming and going, uh, live live export ships, I mean, now, and you saw that the things weren't quite right, or perhaps things could be better, or you thought, oh, gee, this this could be a bit gruesome. Did you ever then think, okay, I'm now just going to finish? My my uni degree, and I'm just going to get all that done, and then I'm I'm actually going to go and join this full time. Did you actually have that?
1: Oh up? no, I Did had a. Um, by the time I would finished vet school, um, or oh, well months months in advance, six months. Well, we're really a couple of years in advance. It was already sort of penciled in that I would go and work um, at a practice in New South Wales that I knew of uh, when I finished grad. Well, finished vet school, and um, and that was all teed up, and I was going to have a few months off. Um, after, you know, all that uni and and then start working So you were
0: gonna have a perfectly normal career. Yep, yep, yep.
1: And um and I was in Sydney with some friends who um I didn't go to my graduation dinner and um and my friends were gonna come over for me and I said, um I said, look, don't bother, I'm not going. There was a ten year age difference between myself and my classmates and, and whilst they were lovely people, I was just like, I just I want to get out of Perth. And so instead of my friends flying over, they said, Oh well that's cheaper for us. How about we just fly you to Sydney and take mm. you to dinner? So I'm like oh, lovely. sweet. Yeah. So they flew me to um to Sydney and, and took me to Doyle's, which was lovely and, you know, it was all very nice. And um and I managed to, you know, avoid my, my grad dinner, which was um you know, everyone's 10 years younger than me. They're all talking about Britney Spears and stuff. And I'm just like going, oh, how do I get a mortgage? Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> there, there were different dynamics and I'd spend a lot of time with them. You know, it wasn't snobbery. And, um, and I'm walking down the street in Sydney and I get a phone call from one of the exporters that I'd worked next to whilst, whilst being a wharfie. And he's like, oh, Lynn, you know, we've got this ship going to Saudi Arabia, you know, next week. Um, we're looking for a vet, could you do it? And I'm thinking, I've been graduated 10 minutes, like seriously. Mm, mm. And, um, and you've
0: got this perfectly normal career that you've lined up. <laughs> yeah, I've got work. You've just had dinner at Doyle's.
1: Yep, yep, yep. And, um, and someone
0: says, you want to go to Saudi Arabia?
1: And it was hilarious because um, because on the wharf – you know, it's really that mentality. You are all the same. It doesn't matter if you're male, female, whatever. You do the same work. You get asked to do the same job. You get paid the same money. So I can't get into that argument of women and pay um, inequality because I've al- always earned either as much as the guys I work with or more. So mm. so I sort of shut my mouth when it comes to that. And um, And this guy... He hadn't realized that as a wharfie and somebody with some life experience, because I was a bit older starting vet school, that, um, you know, I had the confidence to value myself. And he said, oh, well, because it's your first voyage, you know, we'll pay you $350 a a day or something like that was Mm. the, you know, was what he was offering me. And I said, well, get someone else to do it. (laughs) <laughs> it's just like which cheap. I mean I mean that was great money but I was just like no 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 I'm I'm playing hardball here too yeah, because don't I mess with me I know how you guys work and I'm, I know <laughs> how you waste money and and whatever and I know the going rate at the time was five hundred dollars a day and um and I'm like no the going rate's five hundred dollars a day and he goes but that's for an experienced vet I said no that's for any vet and I'm a vet now so right so you pay me that or you get another vet and um and it was quite funny. So he he did. He just conceded then and there on the street, and um and I was quite surprised. I turned around to my friend. I'm like, "Can you believe that some idiot's yeah. going to pay me 500 bucks a day? I don't <laughs> even know what I'm doing." So um so anyway, I flew back to Perth and got on a ship to Saudi Arabia and did three trips in a row, and then started um general practice.
0: Uh, wait, uh, what? When you say you started general practice after those trips? Yep. Okay. So and then okay, so you had this little interlude of doing something incredibly. Unusual, given your circumstances, and then you went back to starting your perfectly normal career.
1: yeah, well, my perfectly normal career sort of followed the plan of my normal life and during um at the end of vet school, after spending five years in a dark lecture theater with the same fifty two people that I'd studied with, one of my very good friends came up to me and they said, "You know what, Lynn it doesn't seem no matter what you do, something weird happens <laughs> you know We had this conversation the other day and um And she goes, when you started telling us stories about things you'd done in your past, because she came straight from school to vet school, whereas I'd done camel safaris as a living and ridden racehorses and driven trucks, et cetera, and – and she goes, we actually thought you were just full of shit. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just like, yeah, thanks, Suze, that's really sweet. And, um, and <laughs> La- she goes, Language warning there. <laughs> <laughs> she goes, but 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 now that we've spent five years with you, we realise that that's just how your life goes. And it was funny because I saw them at the, the last week of vet school and then, you know, I skipped off to Doyle's and then I went to Saudi Arabia um, twice and Jordan once and then came back and it was actually um, – proper formal graduation that I went to um, in March in the, the following years because they always delay it and so I went over to um, Perth for the the proper you know dress up in the frock and get your piece of paper um, do and I turned up and everyone's like come up to me going so what are you up to now so you know <laughs> so so what have you managed to do in this couple of t- couple of months? you know we've all just had like a, a gap summer and and had a great time but we're sure you've done something ridiculous and I'm like mm well, you know, a couple of trips to Saudi and this. and um, But what they were most interested in was when I explained to them that I was on a, f- a flight out of Saudi Arabia and um, and this guy died on me.
0: By this stage, I was getting a good sense of the early parts of Lynn's story. What came next was a complete surprise. And if you've ever wondered whether this kind of thing happens on aeroplanes, well, listen on. But it's not for the squeamish.
1: And um, and this guy died on me, and I was what, on the plane. Yeah, I was trying N- to get next to you. Um, in my arms. Um, I tried to. I was trying okay. to get to my um seat, and I, I'd seen him in the airport, and he looked really crook, and I was really tired, and I had turned around to my stockman, and I said, the stockman had said to me, he "Goes, what do you reckon's wrong with him?" And I said, "I don't know, but if he was a sheep, you'd kill him." <laughs> and ah. um. And we we're both slouched back in our seats in this is Saudi Arabia. You guys don't mince words do you. <laughs> it was just like we were we were fatigued and we'd just spent, you know, weeks together at sea and we're just like, Oh, get us home. And um and this poor little guy was, you know, hacking away with a horrible cough and we you know, it was a funny shade of grey and I'm just like, mm, it's not good. And um as we got on the plane, I was walking to my seat and um I passed one of the little galley areas on the plane and I saw this guy and he was standing in the galley hanging onto the steel counter and he was looking into the sink and he looked up at me as I walked past and I stopped and I said, "Are you okay? Can I help you?" You know, he had blood coming out of his nose and his mouth. Oh, dear. And um and he looked at me as if he'd recognised that somebody w- – or acknowledged that somebody was talking to him. I said, can I – and I, I walked towards him and I said, can I just help you go to the bathroom or something and, you know, well, let's tidy you up and sit you down and, mm. you know, sort out what's going on. And with that – and maybe it's because I approached him um, – and, um, but he leant over into the sink and he vomited about a litre of pure blood, um, oh straight into the sink. And then he just collapsed and I caught him and put him on the ground. And so I started CPR on him and, um, and I had a stethoscope in my bag, um, which I would naively taken, thinking I could use it on the ship for the animals. And so I had the stethoscope out, and I'm like, oh, not much going on. And um, and I made my stockman stay with me. So we got the crew to bring some gear, and I was trying to draw up a vein to get some adrenaline into this guy and, and move along and um, and get him alive, which would have been nice. And a couple of uh, nurses who was, were on the flight came to, to help. And so we intubated this guy, which, you know, put a tube down his throat and we were breathing for him and and um trying to defibrillate him and i couldn't get a needle into him anywhere i couldn't find a vein and um as a vet we're we're trained to do tiny little kitten veins so Mm. you know to not be able to get a vein on on a on a slim man is you know they should be sticking out it should should be be really easy easy. so i couldn't find one it was really and i'm like and um and with vet training um i've just gone straight to his neck and i you know occluded the jugular and the jugular popped up and I, i shoved the needle in there drew back got blood and i'm like right i'm in a vein i injected the adrenaline held the the spot down and um at this stage i had a male nurse sitting above this guy's head um breathing for him with the tube and he's going what are you doing and I said, I can't get a vein anywhere else. And he goes, That's bloody gutsy. Yeah. And I said, What do you mean? And he goes, I have never seen, I've got a stethoscope around my, my, throat, my neck, right? Yeah. He goes, I've never seen a doctor go IV in a jugular in my life. And I went, Oh, oh, that's because I'm a cattle veteran. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. And this poor guy—you could see that they were following every command that oh, I'd given, no. and um, and everything had been correct. I mean, the, the guy yeah. was cactus. But... I thought I was talking to a human doctor, <laughs> yeah. and I'm like, no, oh, no, no, I do cows. Gosh, they don't give you your leg. You know, <sighs> they won't sit in a chair and let you put a little tourniquet around. them. I mean,
0: we're laughing, but this is incredibly tragic. <laughs> well,
1: yeah, and the poor dude. You know, I mean, he was dead when he hit the ground, and um, but you have to work on them for a certain amount of time wow. and um, and try. And, um, and the crew didn't want to touch him. So I'm just, I'm,
0: Yeah, I was going to ask you, I'm just thinking, what's everybody else doing at this point?
1: Yeah, they were very happy that they weren't being asked to,
0: to assist. So yeah, would, was... would you mind just holding this for me? <laughs> yeah.
1: So I was lucky I had my stockman who um, was used to the blood and gore of the ship and myself that was just treating this guy, you know, humans are just a different shaped sheep really or uh, okay. sheep are a different-shaped human, you know, <laughs> okay. they're exactly the same. You can pretty fu- pretty much modify Da Vinci's man, you know, the the classic picture, to any species of um, mammal and um, except for maybe a dolphin. That would be a bit tricky. Mm. And um, and so, yeah, the um, the poor guy, the crew, like I say, didn't want to touch him and they'd called paramedics and the, they opened up this door at the side of the plane, one of the emergency exits, and they scissor-jacked a... Um, a platform up to us and they came in with a body bag and we bagged him and um, and I lifted him up to go through his pockets to get some ID because nobody wanted to touch him. And um, and it was really weird because I, I guess as a vet you just do what you have to do and, you know, I just put my hand under his belt and lifted him and he weighed no more than a sheep. Like, you know, mm. he, he he wouldn't have weighed 50 kilos. And I lifted him up and I went through his pockets and I found um, – it was quite sad. I found a Siemens book, passport, a big wad of US dollars Oh, what of US dollars, a little statue of Jesus and a vial of insulin. Oh, wow. And so the insulin told me why I couldn't find a vein. Yeah, sure. And the rest of it told me that he'd just signed off from a ship. Now, oh, the tragedy dear. there is that he should never have been allowed to sign off from a ship to go to a plane. He should have been sent to a hospital. Yeah. Because he was clearly unwell in the airport. And um, and whether anybody could have done anything for him, I'm not sure. I, I, I assume he had pneumonia and... Um, and then bled out from kind of like an aneurysm in the throat, um, which, you know, even in hospital, you wouldn't be able to stop. But he may have had his pneumonia treated to the point that the coughing wouldn't have ruptured the blood vessel. So this is where seafarers are often just treated like dirt by their um, yeah employees. So
0: given the nature of. Your life and your experiences, no doubt the next phone call was a friend from Australia saying, oh, what are you doing now?
1: Yeah, 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 like within 48 hours, I was probably at home, um, you know, riding my horse through a paddock with the dogs running behind me. It's an incredible experience. Yeah, picking a bottle of wine for the night.
0: After processing what I'd just heard, I started to get an idea of just how tough seafaring could be. Depending on where you are in the world, it can be a really difficult existence, and in most cases, invisible. Sure, there's the animal welfare to consider, but there's a human story to this as well. And you can easily find yourself forgetting why all this is happening in the first place. The animals aren't going on holiday, or being relocated. They're off to the slaughterhouse to be processed for human consumption. Don't we do that here in Australia? Isn't that what local meat workers do? So many questions begin to enter my mind. What's it like once the ship sets sail? And who's buying this meat? Does the journey need to happen at all? This was going to get complex. 47 Degrees is independently produced by Colink Media. Interviews, narration and production by Colin Klupik. Music licensed by Getty Images. To get in touch, send your emails to 47degrees at colinkmedia.com. Or to post your thoughts and join the conversation, visit facebook.com slash 47 podcast.